Welcome to Antibodies. This is our 14th episode in the Immunology 101 series, a segment where we teach immunology. Joining me today is my co-host Natalie Graham from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. How are you doing, Natalie? Good. It's a great day to learn about innate immunity. Yeah, I've been enjoying this innate immune series a lot, and I think it's because innate immunity is just generally very interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that you work on TLRs. Yeah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm totally buying that. <laughs> okay, in the last episode, we discussed about the molecular side of innate immunity with a focus on pattern recognition receptors. Namely, toll-like receptors and CLRs, ALRs, RLRs, and NLRs. Then we talked about the transcriptional changes these receptors can bring about in a cell, which leads to secretion of proteins called cytokines and chemokines. Today, we're going to talk about some of these cellular parts of innate immunity, like phagocytes and innate lymphoid cells. Yeah, phagocytosis is one of the first things high school students learn about in the immune system. Yes, and that's because phagocytic cells make for an important line of defense against pathogens that have penetrated the epithelial barriers. And also, I think in the high school, it's easy to visualize phagocytosis than the other complicated things yeah, the just, immune system does. Just like, nom, 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 nom. Yeah, the <laughs> immune system works by eating stuff up. That's it. <laughs> Very easy to conceptualize. Okay. Got it. This, some of the cells that participate in this process are monocytes, macrophages, neutrophils, and dendritic cells. This process of uptaking extracellular pathogens or particles greater than 0.5 microns in size is an evolutionarily conserved mechanism present in both invertebrates as well as vertebrates. You may ask, in which context does phagocytosis happen? I may? Okay, in which context does phagocytosis happen? Okay, I'm glad you asked. Uh, let's imagine you have a wound in your skin and you didn't give it much attention. And now you have a bacterial infection. Due to the inflammation caused by the dead cell products, the monocytes from the blood are recruited to the injured site. Is this recruitment through chemokines? Yes, chemokines are one of the reasons the immune cells come to check out the area of injury. Then these recruited monocytes differentiate into macrophages. The macrophages will sense the pathogen and activate signaling pathways that will induce changes in their cytoskeleton, extending the phagocyte's plasma membrane to engulf and internalize the microbes into phagosomes. So how does the phagocytic cell know where and when to phagocytose? That's a good question. And the answer lies on the surface of the phagocytic cells. As they are loaded with a variety of receptors, including pattern recognition receptors, also called PRRs, the PRRs will recognize PAMPs on the surface of microbes, such as cell wall components of bacteria or fungi like the 
LPS of the bacteria, peptidoglycan, the manans and beta-glucans present on fungi, etc., etc. Examples of receptors that induce phagocytosis, well, the PRRs, then there are some scavenger receptors that we'll maybe talk about some other day. Another way of activating phagocytosis is through soluble proteins called opsonins. Examples of these opsonins are complement proteins, mannose binding lectin, and C-reactive proteins. We will also talk about opsonins and complement system in a future episode. So the opsonins, after they bind to the pathogen, are also recognized by unique receptors that are present on the surface of the phagocytic cells. So the phagocyte can recognize PAMPs on the surface of the pathogens or opsonins bound to the pathogen. And in both cases, the outcome is enhanced phagocytosis? Yes, that is correct. So what happens after the recognition? Like, how is the bacteria destroyed? After the pathogen is phagocytosed, it's put brought into these intracellular compartments called phagosomes. And the phagosome is then fused with the lysosome, resulting in the formation of a new compartment called phagolysosome. Yeah, the brilliant thing about these cells is that they compartmentalize their work so things stay separate. Like, in this case, keeping the phagocytized material in separate from the rest of the cellular machinery so it can be dealt with without affecting the other functions of the cells. Like, what if there was a toxin harbored by the pathogen? You wouldn't want this toxin to, like, leak out into the cytoplasm. Yep, you're right. This is also how we compartmentalize our lives. We keep our work in the workplace and personal life at home. We don't mix these. (laughs) Yeah, as a graduate student, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, you're right about the compartmentalization part. In in fact, the lysosome is also a distinct compartment because the things present inside the lysosome are quite toxic to the rest of the cells if they leak out. Now that we are talking about lysosomes, let me tell you what all is present inside the lysosome. This compartment contains antimicrobial peptides. It has low pH. There are hydrolytic enzymes, proteases, and specialized molecules that mediate oxidative attack. This oxidative attack employs a highly toxic reactive oxygen species, also called ROS, and reactive nitrogenous species called RNS. These are products of two important enzymes, NADPH oxidase and nitric oxide synthase, respectively. In order to generate these products, the oxygen consumed by phagocytes increases and is provided by a metabolic process known as the respiratory burst, in which superoxide ions, hydroxide peroxide, and hypochlorous acid is generated. In contrast to reactive nitrogenous species are generated when nitric oxide synthase uh, oxidizes L-arginine to yield L-citrulline and nitric oxide, a potent antimicrobial agent. So both we've got nitric oxide and all those superoxide ions that I talked about. The generation of ROS and RNS will affect the stability of the bacterial membrane and it interferes with the function of these bacterial enzymes, all the enzymes that the bacteria needs for survival. All of this will eventually lead to the destruction of the phagocytosed bacteria. First of all, I just want to say that that is like very hardcore stuff to have in a cell, just like in a pocket 
a bunch of poison, basically. Um, yeah, and it's like keeping a whole arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's amazing. Uh, so the phagocytic cells will only phagocyte pathogens, not our own cells. They won't phagocyte those healthy cells. Okay. Phagocytic cells can also participate in removing apoptotic cells, cell debris, and senescent cells. Sometimes dying cells can release dams which will activate and attract phagocytes to clear them. In some other cases, the phagocytosis can take place without any inflammation. This is a part of maintaining homeostasis, just like taking out the trash. There's nothing alarming about taking out the trash, right? As a matter of fact, uh, this process of trash removal is called epherocytosis. And this is a non-inflammatory process. You know what's cool about epherocytosis? It's that when it's one of those processes, which if it's disrupted, it can lead to autoimmune diseases because you have all of this cell debris lying around and well, cells, they can, these debris can activate cells when not needed. Oh man, so a ferrocytosis. I already feel smarter now that you've told me a new term. I'm definitely gonna bring it up in my dinner table conversations. You, you realize that's why people don't wanna hang out with you, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, on a different note, um, is phagocytosis the only way to control bacterial spreading? Since you asked, there are other ways that the innate immune system controls bacterial spreading. An example of this is the release of these NETs by neutrophils. The NET here is an acronym. It stands for Neutrophil Extracellular Trap, and this process is called netosis. Okay, that acronym was definitely made up after they yeah. saw what it did. <laughs> like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so uh, this is like one of my favorite things, actually, in immunology. Can you tell me what this net is made of? Uh, when neutrophils recognize a pathogen, they don't only activate phagocytosis, but they also release a trap made up of chromatin, filaments, and several proteins. This may be hard to believe, but neutrophils literally vomit out their chromatin to capture pathogens. <laughs> Dude, that's so gross. I, I, I mean, it's pretty sticky, right? Because it's covered with all that protein and it is DNA. At least yeah. somebody is making use of that big genome. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine the time when we did not know about what the non-coding regions did. And then somebody discovers netosis. Suddenly the whole paradigm shifts towards, oh, so the non-coding region exists so that the neutrophils can use it as nets. That makes sense. That, that was the immunologist's um, way of thinking of things. All the RNA biologists were like, oh, long non-coding RNAs. That's, that's it. That's everything. That's everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, this, this trap, this net serves two functions. First, it immobilizes the pathogen and the contents of this net are also highly inflammatory. So they recruit other immune cells to look at what's going on. Another example of way we deal with these pathogens but in, from the innate immune part is pyroptosis. And things are going to get a bit dark here because pyroptosis is the equivalent of killing yourself to stop the spread of an infection though this killing signal is extrinsic. So it's more like murder, but then you are okay with that, right? 
if somebody <laughs> else is telling you to go kill yourself and you're completely fine with that. Man, it's like our cells are in a weird cult and the cult leaders are, yeah. you know, <laughs> macrophages and killer T cells and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So the molecular signals that drive pyroptosis, these are inflammatory cytokines. And, and a fun fact, uh, it is called pyroptosis because it is like death due to fire, where, uh, where with fire, I mean inflammation. Yeah. Pyro, like, you know, pyromaniac. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes macrophages go through pyroptosis to prevent the spreading of intracellular bacteria, such as salmonella and listeria. So the dead macrophage will just release more cytokines and hence more inflammation to clear out the remaining infection. All this time, uh, we have been mentioning how inflammatory signals like cytokines and chemokines are bringing in the immune cells to the site of injury or infection. Natalie, can you elaborate more on this process? I want the details. Oh, yeah. So when our physical barriers are damaged, like the skin, the immediate process is an inflammatory response triggered by innate mechanisms. So the inflammation may be acute, and that's your more short-term, or chronic, which is long-term. Chronic inflammation is generally more damaging than helpful, and we'll definitely talk about that in detail in a future episode Um, Mr. Autoimmune Guy. So for now, let's just focus on that acute inflammation. During acute inflammation, some of the dead cell products and the cytokines released by nearby cells cause an increase in vascular diameter that leads to an increase of blood volume in the area. So it's just like tons of cells and blood and stuff is rushing to that area. And this higher blood volume also heats the tissue and causes it to redden. The cytokines increase the permeability of the blood vessels, leading to leakage of fluid from the blood vessels, resulting in the accumulation of fluid that swells the tissue. All of these conditions actually are making it perfect for the immune cells to enter this area and investigate. It's not just to make it look gross. Yeah, there is a reason for why it happens. (laughs) So this increased permeability of the vessels is clearly super important for these immune cells to come in. Uh, Otherwise, the endothelial cells that make up the vessels are so tightly packed that under normal conditions, the immune cells cannot squeeze between these cells. Which which is a good thing, right? Like you wouldn't want these immune cells to be in the tissue when nothing is wrong with them. And that can happen and it is bad. So that is bad, which is also something we'll talk about Yeah, we'll talk about that later. (laughs) Um, To go in more specifics, Uh, Some of the molecules that help in all these changes at the site of injury or infection are TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, and IL-6. For chemokines, we have prostaglandins, uh, histamine, among others. Uh, If you remember from previous episodes, many of these are produced in response to PAMPs. These factors will not only activate immune cells, but also uh, other surrounding cells, such as vascular endothelial cells, which will induce the expression of cell adhesion molecules and IL-8. And this will eventually lead to the migration of immune cells, such as neutrophils and monocytes, to the damaged tissue. All right, I have two things to tell you. First, I recently read this very cool article that shows this this protein called formin-like. It's in T-cells. And what this protein helps in, it helps in restructuring of the actin filaments Mm. to squeeze the nucleus. 
So the nucleus can squeeze in and this and it turns out it's important for these T cells to pass in pass through very tiny pores. So this paper has a very fun video. At the end, this is a video which shows that there is a tiny tube and the T cells are made to pass through it. And the foramen one like deficient T cells, they just can't pass through it. It's like so clear. I, I was just amazed. So yeah, again, there are these proteins that help to pass through things. And one of the, one of these are of course required for our immune cells to check out what's going on. So that was just a, a tangent. My main question. No, that's Wait, can I add to your tangent? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, have you seen those videos of neutrophils trying to, you know, get through? It's like they do something called, it's like a rolling mm-hmm. thing along the chemokine gradient. And yeah, there are videos of like the neutrophil is literally rolling along the surface of the endothelial cells just looking for a spot to get in. And it's very cute. I, I have not um, watched those, but I can imagine <laughs> that would be very funny because they stink yeah. and now they want to find a place. Yeah. Okay, coming back to my real question, which is not a tangent. So we need PAMs to, to set up an import an environment for immune cells to investigate, to increase phagocytosis, to induce NETs, and even for pyroptosis. That's a lot of PAM functions. Yeah, so we're going to have to make that the focus of something else. But yes, PAMs are quite important for certain adaptive responses as well. Yeah. So that puts spams at the center of most of our immune responses, right? It does. So um, now let's kind of shift focus a little bit. I want to tell you about a cool set of immune cells. It's kind of a burgeoning region of resource uh, research. In recent years, immunologists have performed a lot of research, and almost every week new information is popping up on a cell population that we called innate lymphoid cells or might be easier to remember, ILCs. Originally, we were taught at school that the lymphoid cell progenitor could just give rise to like T or B cells. But there was a particular lymphoid subset that really kind of looked like a cytotoxic T cell. Do you guys remember this? Uh, yeah, I'm talking about natural killer cells. And these are actually a type of innate lymphoid cell. So uh, natural killer cells, NK cells, were first discovered in the early 70s as the panacea for treating cancer. So uh, these cells are cytotoxic to tumor cells, even if they've never encountered a tumor cell before. Uh, They are innate killers. They just look for things to kill and they do it. The most important effector function is they have this antibody cell-mediated cytotoxicity. So uh, NK cells have in their cytoplasm granules with perforin, which is like uh, it can punch holes and stuff, and, and granzyme that kills cells by inducing apoptosis. This function is also enhanced by type 1 interferons, um, which are a type of cytokine induced during viral infections. Hey, those type 1 interferons are also products of viral PAMP recognition. Hey, yeah, they are. So at this point, we could connect anything that's happening in our body with respect to the immune system to PAMPs. Uh, Coming back, during the early viral infection, uh, NKs are rapidly activated and control the infection in tissues days before the adaptive response is generated. Uh, I want to make a distinction here. Note that NK cells primarily kill infected or transformed cells of your own, not pathogens. I have a question. Uh, How do 
NK cells recognize when a cell is infected or stressed or is in the process of transformation to a cancer well, that's cell? That's a pretty good question. So NK cells don't have unique receptors that recognize infected cells like B or T cells do, but they do have receptors for specific proteins that are only upregulated on infected malignant or stressed cells. So like class one MHC, you're supposed to be uh, NK cells don't care what's presented on the MHC class one. All they care about is if MHC class one is there or not. Um, if it is missing, that's a signal for the NK to kill this cell, which is kind of funny. Basically, like the cells have to wave a little flag all the time that says, please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. And then if it's gone, it's like, I should kill that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, apart from NK cells, there are other innate lymphoid cells. Um, for keeping it brief, let's just say innate lymphoid cells have their own niche where they are found. Um, they're predominantly found in the mucosal barriers, so things like your lungs and your gut. Um, broadly, we categorize them as group 1, group 2, and group 3 ILCs. So NK cells are actually group 1, and each group has a unique cytokine secretion profile and, uh, you know, kind of what they are required for attacking. We should do a paper on ILCs. That way we get to discuss where they're important, because honestly... I have no idea what ILCs do. Yeah, same. We definitely should. I know a guy. Um, you should invite that guy. <laughs> <laughs> As the last thing we go over today, uh, let's look at some conditions where the immune response is not adequate due to some genetic defects. You know what's funny about our knowledge regarding immune dysfunction is in humans? It's that it's primarily derived from people who have had such disorders where they are deficient in certain genes or mutations. It's like we only know how important something is until it's taken away from us. Yeah, like in relationships. Like, like we don't know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we understand what we had, only when it is lost. So deep. But I think we're going on a tangent again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about immune dysfunction. So the importance of some of the individual molecules involved in the generation of innate and inflammatory responses is dramatically demonstrated by the impact on human health of genetic defects and polymorphism. So we'll call it, like that's a genetic variant um, that would alter the expression or function of these molecules. So just to give you an example, let's look at toll-like receptor, those are TLR deficiencies. So TLRs are PPRs that recognize PAMPs. Upon contact with these pathogenic products, TLRs start a signal cascade to the nucleus of the cell to secrete cytokines, which then stimulate the immune system to combat those invading microorganisms. So there are actually several TLR immunodeficiencies which have been described in which cellular proteins that should transmit the message from TLRs to the nucleus are abnormal. These signaling defects result in a failure of production of any response to bacterial infection. And one of these disorders is called MITE88 deficiency. Um, as you know, all TLRs except TLR3 use a signaling protein called MITE88, which is myeloid differentiation primary response protein 88. And that's an adapter that allows the innate immune cell to function normally. I'm so glad we discussed about the role of MITE88 in one of our previous episodes. Yeah, all, all that knowledge that seems so confusing is finally going to make sense here. So Mighty88 Mighty deficiency was initially described in nine children suffering from recurrent and severe pus-forming bacterial infections. Oh, there's a word for that, pus-forming. What is it? it? 
I have no idea. Uh, these, yeah, <laughs> these these children were susceptible to inv invasive infections with S pneumonia, S oris, and P arginosa. Aeruginosa. But yeah. had. Originosis. Oh man, Latin is not my strength. This is one of the perks uh, but of also, being in a microbiology department that I can pronounce those names. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so they were susceptible to these particular bacteria, but they had normal resistance to other common bacteria, viruses, fungi, and parasites. So the typical presentation of TLR deficiencies is susceptibility to infection with either bacteria or viruses. And since we now understand the importance of MIDI-88, it all makes sense. Of course, without MIDI-88, the TLRs don't signal properly. It's like you're trying to shout at an immune cell to do something, but that immune cell is deaf. Yeah, so what's what's cool is that the gene IRAC4, um, which is also downstream of some TLRs, was found um, in people in a similar way. Patients who were deficient in IRAC4 have trouble responding to uh, polysaccharide capsule-containing proteins. So, in fact, they don't even respond to vaccines that use polysaccharide. Eventually, it helped us understand how important TLRs are for antibody production against polysaccharide-containing antigens. Yeah, this is a similar story of how the first toll gene in Drosophila was discovered. Of course, we could genetically engineer uh, flies. We can't do that in people. Uh, in, in Drosophila, they found that toll-deficient flies were highly susceptible to fungal infections, and that led to our understanding of how important the toll gene was in Drosophila. Which is just really cool that we have this gene that functions very similarly all the way back to fruit flies. So, like, next time you see yeah. a fruit fly, be like, oh, you are my brother. Yeah, um. and also <laughs> if you see something that's so conserved tells you how important that is and it has it it needs to have very little evolution and it, it it's still working it's still just as important yeah it's like the horseshoe crab of genes yeah uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I i think this is a good point to end the episode uh what have we learned today if the audience has been asleep all this time here's what they have missed when there is an injury the site of injury gets flooded with molecules that help in increasing vascular permeability, blood flow, and immune cell recruitment. Some of the ways our immune, uh, innate immune system gets rid of pathogens is through phagocytosis of extracellular pathogens, which is by macrophages and uh, neutrophils. Then there is netosis by neutrophils to eliminate extracellular pathogens. Then there is cell-mediated cytotoxicity by natural killer cells to eliminate infected or transformed cells. And then there is pyroptosis, where an infected cell that, uh, that just dies due to increased inflammation, and then it also contributes to increasing inflammation. Then, many of the innate immune processes, including everything that I've mentioned so far, depends on pattern recognition receptors. And lastly, most of our knowledge about the importance of certain molecules in human immunity is derived from patients who have had deficiencies in these molecules. Natalie, thanks a lot for the wonderful discussion. Woo, yeah, no problem. Super fun. For our audience, if you're interested to know more about our science communication endeavors, please check out antibodies.org. 
You can find our blogs, journal clubs, and podcasts there. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email us at antibodies1 at gmail.com. With that, I'm your host, Jatin Sharma, signing off until we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye.